Welcome to the My Chains Are Gone podcast, a place where people are sharing their stories of how God has brought them life and freedom through Jesus. Today, Timothy shares his story, poverty, violence, and a sexually deviant society weaved with a legalistic understanding of scripture, left Tim very weighted with an understanding that it was up to him to create a better life for himself, one that was safe, good, and provided acceptance. He felt eternally secure, but was filled with shame, loneliness, and a sense of being unlovable. Through a study of the scriptures and living in intentional community, Tim learned about grace. I hope you enjoy Tim's story. Timothy, thank you so much for coming on my show and um, being willing to share your story. So, Timothy, tell me a little bit about who you are right now. Um, so right now, just kind of generically speaking, um, I'm a husband married to a wonderful lady, Sarah Dixon. Um, we have a little 10 month old. She's adorable. Um, I work at Children's Grand here in Columbia, Missouri. I hear that's a good place to work. It is a yeah. very good place to work. <laughs> yes. I'm very grateful for it. Um, and, um, I'm a deacon at Carter's Church over our missional communities. Um, just trying to help families live as disciples to make disciples. Yeah, great. Okay, so are you originally from Texas? I am. You I'm are? from Texas. Okay, so I'm kind of from all over Texas, and so one specific place. Okay, all right. Did you grow up? So Texas is kind of like the southern part of the Bible Belt. Yeah. Did you grow up going to church? I did. So I, I grew up um, going to church. Um, in, in some instances, a very works righteousness home. Uh, what kind of my dad wanted to be a pastor for as long as I've been around, um, and then my grandfather, I call him Papa. I'm a mom, Papa. Um, he is a preacher, um, but he's a preacher of an independent fundamental Baptist church, um, and so. If you know anything about that kind of, um, whatever the word is. Denomination. Denomination. Yes, thank you. Um, that denomination, um, they care very fervently about um, the rules and regulations. And one of the downsides can be, doesn't necessarily have to be, but can be that works righteousness rears its ugly head. Mm-hmm. Um, and my home, whether with my mom and papa or with uh, my mother and father, um, tended to be more works righteousness. Mm-hmm. Like follow the rules, do these good things. Yeah, here's your list of to-dos, here's your list of don'ts. Um, and oftentimes that kind of resembled, and there's a lot of intellectual knowledge and intellectual assent in Christ um, and kind of what the Bible said and what it meant and things of that nature but there was a lot of disconnect emotionally specifically there was a lot of disconnect emotionally um, I think a good example of that was um, I had to you had to have a clear good reason and argument for everything in my home um, and if you didn't have a good reason for it it didn't matter Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you weren't really allowed to be upset like you weren't allowed to be angry um, there wasn't room to like 
hey, you're upset, you're angry, let's process that. Why are you angry? How can I help? Um, it was just wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so there was this disconnect of, of, hey, the Bible talks about being humble and loving and kind and generous and gentle. Um, and we say and talk about those things all the time. Um, but then when we're at home, just kind of the nuclear family, there's not a lot of gentle, kind love. So what do you remember your thoughts about God at that time? Uh, I do. So um, I'm a pretty analytical guy. And I actually... <clears throat> so I remember being... This might be extreme, but I remember being four years old. My brother and I are 11 months apart. So um, we're Irish twins, if anybody knows mm-hmm. what that is. Um, we like it. We're very close now. Um, we fought a lot as little kids, but we like it now. Um, and I remember being four years old and my brother coming home from church one Sunday and saying that he got saved. I remember being really frustrated at that because, well, why did he get to be saved, but I don't get to be saved. But I didn't want to look dumb or stupid, so I didn't ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, d- I just didn't bring it up because I was, I was too nervous to look dumb. Like, well, if he knows, I should know. Um, and I remember when I was six years old, we're going through Advent at Christmas time. And kind of my dad said this, like, hey, you can ask Jesus to forgive your sins, and he will, and that's how you're saved. Some semblance of that. And I remember immediately, like, kind of, like, closing my eyes and, like, turning to the side to talk to Jesus. And I don't remember this part, but I'm regularly told this story of my dad then asked me, you know, noticed that I moved or something. You know, hey, Timothy, would you like to do that? To which I snarkily replied, I'm trying if you'd let me. Um, <laughs> just a little kid. Um, and so, yeah, I remember being six years old and like having an awareness of sin um, and asking God to forgive me for that. Um, but honestly, I really struggled with that um, because even at that young age, I was already aware of my sin and I was already kind of committing more public sins that people would think of for high schoolers and things of that nature. Um, and so I wrestled with that a lot until um, I was nine years old. Okay. Were you in an environment that that was um, predominant? Like for a six-year-old to be experiencing high school type um, behaviors? That's that. Well, so I grew up poor um so kind of in poverty um kind of violence sex and drugs are everywhere um and although it wasn't a part of like the circles that necessarily my parents walked in um the neighbors that we had and thus the kid friend group that I had um, were in that world. Um, and then for some reason, and I don't know the reason behind this, my friend group, um, and this is true of kind of all of my siblings, my older brother and my little sister, um, but especially me and my brother, we were always like friends with people who were roughly five years older than us, um, sometimes more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Yeah, if I was 
seven. My friends were 13 to 15. I see. Um, so did you, you kind of sound like you felt shame <coughs> around that, like almost this dichotomy or this. For sure. Like, for sure. A lot of shame, a lot of shame, and a lot of guilt. Um, and I, I wanted assurance that I was saved. Mm-hmm. I wanted, you know, I, I kept asking God and myself internally, like, well, how do I know that I'm saved? Because um, I read all these things in the Bible about what Christians do or don't um, do, and I'm doing things that Christians don't do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, maybe I'm not a Christian. Like, maybe I asked, but, you know, I didn't ask for right. Or, right. Those are pretty deep thoughts for an elementary kid. <laughs> um, yeah, they, it's, um, yeah, <laughs> that's just kind of the way God made me, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I remember being nine years old, and I went to this thing with my papa, um, what they call a revival. Um, and this guy, who actually was the gentleman who helped my grandfather come to know the Lord. He was giving his testimony. He was telling his story, and I was <laughs> kind of silly enough. I was a nine-year-old, but I was listening to him tell, share his story, and I was like, this is me. This mm-hmm. guy's story, it's my story. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, he spread it out over you know, 30, 20, 30 years before he came to know the Lord. I was like, Everything you're saying is my story. And I remember he got to kind of the point where he said, God saved me. And he brought up John 3.16. Um, and I kind of deflated. Like, oh, man. Like, I know John 3.16. I'm like, that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. And give, give me something else. And for some reason, the way he said it, um, the Holy Spirit used that. Um, to help me kind of understand when he said believe and you will be saved that God was saving me I wasn't saving me Mm. and that was kind of a huge weight (laughs) off of me um, that that I realized God is saving me I'm not saving me and so my kind of momentary salvation and eventual eternal glorification, to use those big words, were guaranteed. I couldn't mess them up. What I didn't get at that time and wouldn't get for many years later was that sanctification, the process of growing closer to Jesus and becoming more like him, was also by grace. Hmm. That I did not understand for a very, very long time. You know, for a six, seven, eight, nine-year-old, that's that's a really neat story. Um, did life change for you after that moment? I mean, you said that you had, you, it sounds like you almost then afterwards were working towards a sanctification. Was that something that was then a goal of yours after that point? For sure. Um, so it felt more possible um, after that moment to actually improve mm-hmm. um, and get better. But it, I still kind of thought it was up to me to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, like when I die, I'll go to heaven because God took care of that. 
Um, but it's up to me to look more like Christ. Mm. Um, and God used that in big ways in my life um, to kind of just, in a lot of ways, kind of help me stop sinning. Um, a lot of the sexual sin that I was struggling with, I struggled with substantially less. Um, um, but it also kind of, I mean, as with anything that excludes grace, made me more legalistic and works righteousness kind of like my family. Um, because it became more about let me make let me make it so that I can't fall um, rather than letting grace change my heart when I fall. Mm-hmm. Sin. Mm-hmm. So I looked really good. Mm-hmm. But I still had all this private sin. Mm-hmm. Um, I became a, a very good liar um, because I wanted people to like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I, I kind of found what I could say and what I couldn't say to make people more likely to like me. Right. Um, and um, sexual sin became more of a, of a private pornography thing than a with people thing. Um, and so there was this real dichotomy and struggle of I feel like I'm better, um, and yet I feel like I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said you grew up kind of in this poverty environment, but now you're not there. So yeah. what what was the story getting you out of that environment? And so that's really hard um, to answer succinctly. Um, basically, I grew up in a sexually and verbally abusive home. Um, thankfully, it was not physically abusive. Although, because I grew up in poverty, kind of violence speaks in poverty, not words. Right. Um, and so... So now, was this even in your works righteousness-based home? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. For so, sure. so like, at home, sure. these um, were happening yeah. because it wasn't public. Yeah, because it wasn't public. Um, everything was kind of, like, on the, on, on the surface of things. We look happy and put together. Okay. Um, but when you got behind closed doors... Um, yeah, things were kind of were abusive. Okay. Um, in many ways, I kind of was outside of that. And I don't know why that is other than God's grace. Um, there's a lot of a verbal abuse for me, um, but that's kind of where it ended. Um, I didn't have to be subjugated to sexual abuse from my family, although I was subjugated to sexual abuse from friends. Um or, you know, parents, friends, or however that works. Neighbors, that's what I should say, neighbors. Um, and it was something that, like, you, you didn't you didn't talk about um, and you didn't acknowledge. It's kind of real. Um, and as is often the case for victims of abuse, period, um, somehow, um, I think, God made us to want the, the love of a father. Um, and my father um, was the primary culprit. Um, he's in prison for life right now um, for sexual abuse. Uh, and I just I wanted him to like me and I wanted him to love me. Um, 
real bad. <laughs> um, and so I kind of did anything I could do to make that happen. Um, whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. And one of the kind of weird things about that is the things that I saw in him that I didn't like, I wanted to do everything in my power to not be like. So I wanted him to like me, but I didn't want to be like him. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were poor because my dad was a fool with money. Um, And so in many ways, I kind of worshipped this idea of having enough money. Um, and so I worked really hard. Um, our family business, if you can call it that, my papa, um, he was a lumberjack. Um, and so I grew up cutting down cedar trees and selling them for lumber and things of that nature. I, I paid for my first electricity bill when I was six years old. Um, that's just kind of the way I grew up. But so because I grew up making money, um, I'd never really known what it's like to not work and go to school um, until I was done with school. Um, and so even as I kind of grew up, work was more important than school because I wanted money. Um, I, I actually I majored in Japanese and Part of that was because I loved Japanese culture and all this other stuff, but also part of that was because I knew some people who had kind of told me, hey, there's an avenue to earn a lot of money with language. So I picked the language and culture I liked and was like, sweet, I'm going to go make millions of dollars um, because I don't ever want to be poor. And more so even than for me, but for any family I was to have. Any family that I currently had, like my mom and sister and brother and dad, like I wanted to be able to. I didn't like paying for an electricity bill and not being able to pay for everything else. So you wanted to rescue them. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so I looked for ways to make money all the time. Um, and I worked really, really hard to do that. Um, so I worked through college and I paid for college. I worked all through high school. Um, I went and lived with my grandparents to do homeschooling for two years, really so that I could work full-time with my papa. Um, and because it was less of a bad situation at their house than it was not. And so even kind of graduating from college and, and you know, met my wife and we got married, I started working at um, a Target store, and the biggest reason for that was because it paid a lot of money. Um, and then just... You know, a few short years, I was making six figures, and I thought this would be the answer to my problems. Um, and was it? <laughs> no, it wasn't. And my beautiful, wonderful wife fought for us, and I'm really glad she did, because I didn't and wasn't going to, because I thought that would be the answer that would solve my problems. Um, and she... Very graciously, but very forcefully said, like, you got to choose. Is it the job or is it us? Um, And I guess I worshipped her enough to say it's you. (laughs) Um, It's not the job. Um, But I was working anywhere from 80 to 120 hours a week. Um, You know, I'd go go home. I'd be home for two to four hours tops. 
in the middle of the night and go back to work and be at work all day, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, thought, hey, I'm making six figures. They have this plan for me to make way more than that. Um, so, like, just hold on. It just was never worth it. Um, and it was during that time, actually, I was working at Target, working way too many hours a week. Sarah was like, we've got to have community. And God has used my wife in bigger ways than um, I can even understand. And so we started going to this church called Fairview Baptist Church in Sherman, Texas. And being a guy who knew a lot about the Bible, because we were an intellectual family, and so you had to know Scripture and you had to know the right answers, um, the church asked me to lead a small group um, with some other pastors, (laughs) which was a little weird, but I said, okay. Um, My wife and I started leading that small group, um, just some other leaders in the church who kind of wanted some extra kind of community, life on life, in scripture time. And we did a study in the book of Galatians with Tim, Gell- Tim Keller's Read, Feed, Lead, Galatians book. Um, and I remember reading that book, and I got to like chapter two, and I like started crying. <laughs> My wife was like, whoa. What's going on? Are you all right? And I was like, I think sanctification is by grace. And I've lived my whole life thinking sanctification was up to me. And I don't, I don't even get how sanctification is up to grace. But I, I'm reading this here. I'm reading the Bible. And I think that's what Galatians is telling me. That like even my growing closer to Jesus is up to Jesus, not me. Hmm. Um, and, and that actually like frees me to live in joy, to actually look more like him. Um, instead of always kind of focusing on my sin. Mm -hmm. And I would say in a lot of ways, that was kind of the, the beginning of, of a lot of growth that has happened, um, kind of from that came our conversations to leave Target, um, came conversations to pursue ministry as a vocation, which brought us to Columbia, brought us to Carter's Church to do an internship with them. Part of my approval idol has, you know, it, it's always rearing its ugly head. And part of that is because I've been rejected um, by every person in my life that I've been close to. Um, kind of family being the biggest of those things. Um, whether it's my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, anybody I've been close to at one point in my life has looked me in the eye and said, hey, I don't ever want to see you again. Mm. Um, and a lot of that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes came from me revealing some piece of my sin and I felt like they couldn't handle it. Um, we did this thing called redemption groups um, at Cars Church. And my wife and I went through redemption groups. Um, and I was gently, um, but kind of pushed to share things that I was not comfortable sharing. Um, I even to kind of blatantly told them, like, hey, I'll be honest, I'm not going to tell you these things because. 
You won't let me walk back through the doors of the building if I tell you stuff that I did when I was six, seven, eight, nine years old. Um, and they kind of, you know, lovingly were like, hey, I don't want to belittle those feelings, but I want you to, like, ask God to let us be his grace to you. Um, for a long time, I didn't. <laughs> I just said, okay, I'll ask, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to share. Um, and there were a few people, specifically Derek Zimmerman, Bobby Skimbry, um, Daniel Masters, that I was able to share um, through God's grace to say, like, hey, here's some of the specifics, the particulars of my story that I don't think you can handle. But you've asked on some level to be an example of God's grace. So I'm going to share with you. And I'm going to trust God even if you reject me. Like, even if you reject me, I'm going to trust God. Um, and God used kind of Chorus as a body, um, as an actual church, right? What that actually means. To show me grace in tangible ways that I just had never experienced before. Um, and it changed me. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It, it, <laughs> it changed me. Um, and I'm I'm very grateful for that, for for people like Derek Zimmerman to be able to tell me point blank, like, hey, Tim, very few people do I say, you need to look at your sin less. But you get your sin. I'm not concerned about you realizing that you're disgusting. You are. What you don't get is that you're more loved by God than you can fathom. And you need to look at the cross and see that it's bigger than your sin. That eternal abyss of your sin, the cross is bigger than that. And so, yeah, men like him to to speak that truth into my life, to be able to, like, find joy in the death of Jesus and his resurrection. Yeah, I don't have another word other than it changed me. Like it, yeah. it changed the way I view life, the way I view holiness, how to grow closer to Jesus, like what life is about. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in tangible ways, I'm thankful for it because my wife has been able to thank me for being less prideful, um, being less of a jerk, um, being kind of quicker to to acknowledge, like, I messed up. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, to to seek forgiveness. Mm-hmm. I've always been one to be like, "Hey, I'll forgive you, but I don't want you to have to forgive me." Right. Um, and to just wrestle with that. Um, and it's certainly not anything that I'm beyond now. I still want people to like me, um, regardless of who you are, um, whether you're the store clerk or my wife. But I've watched. Christ show me that he's more powerful than my sin. That sin that I've wrestled with my whole life, that I literally have no memory of not wrestling with. I wrestle with less now. Mm-hmm. Because of his power, because of his not power. because of... Yeah, not because I'm trying to wrestle less with it. Um, yeah, and in so many ways I feel like you know, I don't know how to talk about it without skewing it in the wrong direction um, because in so many ways I feel like I don't try at all 
to not sin anymore. Mm -hmm. And I try so much harder than I ever tried before. Right. Like, like both of those are true. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, I attribute it to the grace of, to the grace of God, to, to what I now see in scripture is, is this like, God gave us the law, which is a good thing because I have to see that I'm a sinner. I have to grieve my sin um, before grace matters. Mm -hmm. But grace is what actually changed me, not the law. Like the law, Jesus had to come and die and rise again for people to be saved. Deuteronomy wasn't enough. Yeah, I think that's an amazing story. Can you tell me? Uh, what you love about following Jesus, or why you're glad you're a Christian. I mean, ultimately, he is my hope. All of life could fall away, and I would still have hope. Um, I think of Peter, and maybe this is a ridiculous scenario or or example or analogy to give, but I think of when Jesus kind of, Maybe sarcastically, maybe I'm reading that into the text, but he, he says to this like crowd, hey, my, my flesh is the bread of life and my blood um, is the fountain of life. And he, just, he doesn't explain that. He literally tells them like, you got to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And, you know, essentially thousands of people walk away like, this guy is a weirdo. And he looks at the 12 and he says like, all right, are you going to leave too? And Peter goes, you have the words of life. Like, you're our hope. Um, and I, I can relate to that in so many levels. Like, hey, I don't get it, but hey, give me the fork, give me the knife, like whatever you say. Like, I don't, I don't get it, but I know you, you are where life is. Mm-hmm. And so the rest of my life can follow away. I've, I've spent my life thinking everything else was the answer and trying to have it satisfy me and having it crush me. Mm. And throughout all of those things, you have still been a part of my life. Right At six years old, I came to at least an intellectual understanding of you on some level. And you've never forsaken me, even though I'm continually seeking to forsake you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, in so many ways, it's just like, he's my hope. Like, he's, he is everything I've got. I don't have anything but him. Yeah. Great. Well, Timothy, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's really a powerful message, um, how grace has changed you. So thank you. No problem. Tim learned that it isn't money and worldly success that makes him free. It isn't knowledge that makes him free. And it isn't working harder that makes him free. It is only Jesus that can set him free. As Tim said, there are many twists and turns to his story, but the one theme remains, grace. I am reminded of the scripture from Ephesians 2, 8-9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Let us glory in our Redeemer. If you like this podcast, the easiest way to follow and not miss an episode is to subscribe. Listen to an encouraging story each week. Thank you for listening. Be encouraged and tell your story too.